Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're in our Philippians series, and uh, I'm just going to be going verse by verse through this great book, and, and uh, we get to a point uh, in the passage, we're going to look at verse 9, but I would just, as a, as a point of knowledge and interest, every single letter that the Apostle Paul writes, every letter he writes, whether it's to a church or a young preacher, Timothy or Titus, in his introductory statements, he makes a statement. And then after he has an endearing introductory statement, included in that, he'll make a statement that will then be the foundation for the rest of the letter. And we're going to look at that verse again this morning. We're in our study in the mornings in Ephesians, Sunday morning, where in that first chapter of Ephesians, uh, verse 3, Paul says, I want to thank the God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that statement that he makes, the entire book of Ephesians is based upon that statement and then proving that statement in doctrine and theology and in uh, scripture. So in Philippians, that statement is in verse 6. After his introductory statements, he says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. The Greek word there is perfect it. For I'm, I am confident of this very thing, Paul's letter to the Philippians, that he, God, who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The rest of the letter is based upon the proof of that statement. So you could really confidently say the book of Philippians is about biblical, spiritual, and Christian confidence. So on your handout, please, I want to ask that you turn because I'm going to stick to the handout this morning. Uh, helps me from straying and keeps me a little bit more concise. Uh, but this handout, if you look at that just in the beginning, that foundational statement of Philippians 1.6 and then moving forward now as this proof of this, as part of that proof is Philippians 1 and 9. So I'm going to read that Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, he says, and I pray, well, let's just start back up at verse 7. After he makes the initial statement, verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So if you look at that first statement there, uh, genuine biblical, spiritual, and Christian confidence, it manifests itself, it really does in the right feelings in our heart. Biblical, spiritual, Christian confidence, the kind that God is going to perfect in you and I, that we can have confidence is, it always manifests itself in the right feelings in our heart about all the people in our lives. Do you ever think about that? You want biblical, spiritual, Christian confidence? Do a, look at your heart. Examine your heart and say, how do I feel about all the people? Look, they use the personal pronoun. All the people that are in my life, no matter the circumstances, because of the gospel. You want confidence? It's biblical, spiritual, Christian confidence. It starts right there. That's the first statement after the initial statement. And so he says that. The second uh, is verse 8. Verse 8, for God is my witness. I preached on this, uh, each one of these verses, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So genuine 
spiritual, biblical, spiritual Christian confidence allows us to boldly claim God is my witness. High language. God is my witness concerning our longing and affection for it. There's that term again, you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, now, verse 9. Genuine biblical, spiritual, and Christian confidence of the good work of God in us. Now, very quickly, I'm going to read verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. We've been, the last two weeks, we've been looking at uh, Paul's teaching to the Ephesians on prayer. And so, at this point, in this letter, again, genuine biblical, spiritual, and Christian confidence of the good work of God in us teaches us. Now, if you go to John 14, Jesus is teaching about the Holy Spirit, and he teaches that it's the Holy Spirit that does, in fact, teach us. So, God, using the Holy Spirit, teaches us and leads us to the goal and growth of our prayers in three areas. Your love. Your love. That's what it says here. Your love. Not my love. Now, it's inclusive, so it is mine, it, it, but it's your love. He's very specific here. When you look at all the letters that Paul wrote, he had a deep abiding personal relationship with these folks, whether it was the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, all of his letters, there was nothing random about it. He had developed through mission trips and combined and shared relationships as the church was being established and born and growing. Paul, in God's significant role that God chose Paul to do, all these letters come out of this personal relationship with these folks that he played a part in, that God used him to evangelize, either start a church or develop a church, disciple a church. And so these things are personal. Paul's not just writing a random letter thinking off the top of his head. He's writing personal statements uh, based upon a relationship that he understood. God sent me. God did something by sending me. A church was established. A church is being built. Discipleship is occurring. Evangelism is occurring. And in this point here, he says about this prayer, listen, again, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So the first, there's only, we're only going to touch on one this morning. Next week, it'll be this, the next the, part of this, this real knowledge and all discernment. So your love. He wants it to abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. So here's what I want to ask you. If I ask you, and Paul read the passage in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, but if I ask you, if you weren't aware of that passage, and I ask you to tell me you define love, you defined it. I think that it would be safe to say that we would all, you know, it would be personal to whatever our understanding is. And we might write a little. We might write a statement or two, but we might write a whole lot. Love has been the subject of who? Songwriters and poets and historians and authors and Hollywood movie script writers. Love. So here's the thing that I know about biblical, spiritual, Christian love that is the result of a confidence that God is working in us to perfect something in us. 
Here's what I know. What the Bible and how the Bible frames, teaches, and illustrates love is very, very, very different than the way we do. It really. If you just go through history, if you just turn on any genre of any kind of radio station, you're going to hear somebody's thoughts or philosophy are statements about love, most of which have to do with an earthly love, an earthly love. And, and so Paul, writing to the Philippians with this prayer, he makes a statement. Now, the first thing, the first thing that we know about Christian love, what would it be? I've just put these down here. The first thing is that it's been established by God. Now, I want you to consider that. Now, there's a great theological statement there. In 1 John, in chapter 4, it says that we love because he first loved us. We like to literally, and this is, we like to supersede God. What I say, put ourselves before God or negate God or not even put God in the equation in so many areas of our life. Now, if we understand love that is biblical, spiritual, and Christian, here's the first thing that you and I need to know about love. He established it. He established it. And in fact, here's a really hard lesson in Scripture. It's one of those slap you in the face lessons in Scripture. Do you know that you and I are not even capable of love? What? Not biblical, spiritual, Christian love. They say we're made in the image of God and a child is born and that child begins to learn something about an earthly a, a, a physical love, the love of a mom and dad who just had a child, but that child is not capable. When you're born, you're not capable of loving. You're just born. Now, you don't even have to be a Christian to establish that. Well, you're just born and you're hungry, pretty much. And so you start to learn stuff. Your eyes are dim and they get a little clearer. Your hearing has to develop. And then depending on who is loving you, you start to learn something about love, but it's earthly love. It's temporary love. It's love that could end. It's love that's conditional. If that wasn't true, huh, we wouldn't have all the children homes that we do. We wouldn't see our courts filled with all the brokenness of men's unfulfilled love and promises. It's a temporary love. It, it's love, it's some, but it's an earthly love. It's not biblical, spiritual, or Christian. And so the first thing that we learn is that love is established by God. Now, I have to tell you, I, I like that. I can be confident in that. I, you know, I have learned that I can't be confident in the love, the earthly love, the practiced love, the written love of a man. Can't do it. Cannot do it. My love has limits because I'm not God. Uh, the scripture says God is love. John writes that in 1 John. God is love. You and I are not love. We didn't establish love. We didn't first love him. You and I could not have ever first loved God. We could not have done it. It's a fallacy. The scripture says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. A dead man cannot love. You might learn something 
in your flesh that resembles love or is temporary love, but it's not godly love. It's not eternal love. It's not the love of God. And only God, who is love, can establish that love. Now, we got to start there. If the prayer is going to give us biblical, spiritual, Christian uh, love or confidence, we've got to start there. If it's a prayer for love, your love, it has to start with the biblical knowledge, the spiritual knowledge, the Christian knowledge that God, we only love, if you say you love God, because he has first loved us. We did not first love him. He is love. He initiated love. He's established love. And he has proved love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He loved the world in a way that only he could love the world. As much as you and I may say that we love the world, again, it's temporary. It's temporary. He loved the world in a way that you and I could never love the world. And he proved it. He gave us his only begotten son. Love is established by God. Now, here's a tough one, guys. Go to John chapter 14. This is the tough one. This great passage of Scripture. Jesus makes this statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, you could read the whole chapter. He says it two other times in Scripture. A great theologian said one time, uh, many, many years ago, he wrote, the problem with Christians today is we say we love God and we speak the language of loving God, but it's evident that we do not because there's no obedience in our love. Bon, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the terrible thing that was accomplished in Germany when the Germans succumbed to a authoritarian rule of Hitler and, and, and people just let it happen. The, 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 uh, the horrible uh, genocide of the Jewish people in this, this nation. It became a warlike nation. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, talking about the culture that would allow that to happen, he put it on preachers. He said, we've taught a cheap grace. And I would say to you that in many places in the world is that what's being taught from a pulpit or pulpits is a cheap grace. What does that have to do? You can't separate grace and love. It doesn't, you, where there's love established by God, there can only be grace. Love established by you and I will have limit, we won't, our grace is limited. But when, when the love is established by God, the grace is, huh, it's the kind of grace you want. My grace has limits. Yours does. God just looks and he looks and he looks. And, and to the point where Peter could come and say, should I give, forgive somebody seven times? Because there's a lot of grace in that. And God says, no, no. If somebody asks, you forgive them 70 times seven. And that was not 490 times. That was perfect numbers multiplied. And they literally, what he said, you never stop forgiving. Peter, you never studied the math, the Jewish math, and using those numbers was you don't stop forgiving. 
I don't care how many times somebody comes and asks, you forgive. But now, so you look at that, praise God for that, but when now you look at forgiveness and grace, and Jesus, God the provider, God the standard, there is something that God, Jesus in the flesh says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If ever the 21st century church needed a lesson, one lesson, in the fullness of love, it would have to be the understanding of that statement. And in America, we certainly don't like obedience. We do not like it. We live in a more and more loud, obnoxious, vulgar, we, don't, we do not respect authority. We, we don't say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. We don't humble ourselves to anyone. And all of those things are required when you talk about obedience. So if you, so we, okay, we all agree, Aubrey. We love because God first loved us. We agree God is love. His is eternal. His is beyond anything I can think or uh, imagine. Ours is, my, as a man, my grace has a limit. My love has a limit. My forgiveness has a limit. So he established it. He's proven it. He put it in me. We'll get to that in a minute. And then what he says, though, in order for that love to be biblical, spiritual, and Christian, and genuine, it has to be based upon obedience. Obedience. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, if you want to have a, you see how legalistic we can all be. Theologians have taken that, scholars and just laymen have taken that verse, and this is what they've done. Well, that's just Jesus' commands. So that would be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. I challenge you just to do that. Just look at the commands that Jesus in the red letter uh, lay out for you. There's not one of us in here that is, is doing Not one. Where would you like me to start? There's not one of us in here that could even fulfill that. There's not a single living soul that can say, I am being obedient to the commands of Jesus found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You just want to start in the Sermon on the Mount? How about love your enemy? That's a command. Now, I could just go more and more and more. I'm going to move forward here, just challenge you. But if you believe what the Bible teaches about the commands of Jesus... That would be Genesis through Revelation. Wow. Now, the thing is this. You can't do it, and I can't do it. But if we love him, if we love him, what, would, what is the essence of that? What would it be if you were talking to Jesus? You were having a conversation with Jesus. Okay, Jesus. So, yes. So, you said, if I love you, I'll obey your commandments. Okay, so help me. I mean, you have great examples of that in Scripture. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you got to obey the commandments. Well, which ones? <laughs> you know, I've been obedient to my mother and my father, and I've done, 
Oh, well, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you got and come follow me. Oh, and he went away sad. And so you have conversations with people that in our mind and right here in Scripture where we have these conversations, and there's so many of them in the Gospels, and you can say, okay, so Jesus, tell me, what, help me understand if I love you, I'll obey your commands because I do love you and I want to obey. So what are they? Uh, do you think, what do you think Jesus would say? He would say, every word of God. He would say, tempted by Satan. He would say, listen, you, oh, you got to be hungry out here. You've been fasting. You listen, are you? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. No, no. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God. Jesus is described in John, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So now we're, so if you love me, you'll be obedient to the, all the commands. And if you just want them to be the red letter words, or you want them to be Genesis to Revelation, you and I can't do it. So what is the essence? The essence is a heart that strives to be obedient. You're in war in your flesh. So the first question is, if, if in fact, I believe that God is love. He established love in me. And, and, and so he says that if I love him, he's not only established, he's proved it. But so if I love him, what's, where's, what does my life need to look like? Let's just call it what it is. If people that knew you or didn't know you, they could be the closest associates, friends, neighbors, whatever, people at work, would they say that the essence of you is a person that strives, that understands the love of God, understands the sacrifice of the love of God, the unconditional love of God, would they even say that about you? But then the essence of that person is I can see it. I can see it in their language, their attitude, their giving, their personality, all those things. The essence is that person is trying to be obedient. That person is desiring to be obedient, not according to their will, but someone else's will based upon something else. Not their love, but the love of someone else. So that's that same. So it, your love has been established by God. It is, the essence of it is obedience. And in chapter 15 of John, let's stay right there, verse 13. Chapter 15, verse 13. We'll start in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And greater love has no one that, no one, that one lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Command. So when you look at it, sacrificial, what is sacrificial? So obeying his command that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And if you want to, so you're my friends if you do what I command you. Now, do you remember a story in the gospel of Luke? And Jesus is talking about neighbors and friends. And a Pharisee said, well, I need to understand who my friend and my neighbor is. I, I'm not quite sure because I'm not really sure that God, you know, I, I, I'm an Old Testament guy. 
And uh, Jesus tells him a story about a guy who's walking down the road, and, and, and he's beaten, and he's robbed, and he's at the death's door, and, and a priest goes by, and a Levite goes by, and then a Samaritan comes by. And when you remember what the story is, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritan takes this injured, beaten, robbed individual, takes him to the inn, and says, Pays, look, here's, you take care of this guy. If there's, I'm going to come back. If there's anything else, I'll, I'll pay it more. And Jesus says, and he said, well, who is this man's neighbor or friend? And they wouldn't say a Samaritan. Well, I guess the one that, you know, helped him. So when you read friend, and by the way, did you know the final word that Jesus spoke to Judas? Did you know what the final thing that he said to Judas? His final word to Judas was what? Friend. And it wasn't, he meant it, friend. So don't read this passage with, and say, okay, command. So the command is, I only, because we're talking about biblical, spiritual, Christian confidence and love. So don't, okay, well, I've, okay, I got a loophole here. My friends, just got to do my friends here. Again, so that's man's interpretation, definition. But God's interpretation and definition is your friend, your neighbor. You better define it the way he does. And if you're not really clear on that, just go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, love your enemy. Your love, established by God, sacrificial, obedient, is supposed to, your love, love your enemy. The next one, it's brotherly. I don't have the time this morning. I'm just not going to take the time, but I know that you'll have the time. You just need to read 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. Just read them. I'm just going to do it for Ty. He says, if you, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you, you are a liar. That's what the word says. It says there, he says, if you say, if someone says, 1 John 4 and 20, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And commandment word again. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You know, the single biggest problem in the churches of America and all over the world today, the number one problem is we do not have, we have some kind of love. Maybe it's not sacrificial. It certainly cannot be obedient because we don't even lack obedience. And then the way that culminates is, is it, it lacks brotherly love. Every division that's happening in every church, in every community, in every corner of this world is because brothers are hating brothers. That's it. Satan's having a heyday. And so it'll never be biblical, spiritual, or Christian. If you have malice in your heart for a brother and you say you love God, you're a liar. Not my words, his words. I, please, I challenge you to read First John 
chapter 3 and verse 4, and then we're going to finish here. Paul read it. I just want to challenge you to read again, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I started uh, this several weeks ago. I'm just reading it every day. Every day. I do want to point one thing out to you on the list. 1 Corinthians 13. I could just have preached an entire sermon on this. Um, and so I just want to make one point uh, in the... Uh, in the New Testament Greek, and uh, well, there we go. Come on, Rogers. First Corinthians thirteen, and Paul just read it. I want to point out when you move all the way down to uh, verse four. Verse four, love is patient. It's patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Some translations would say envious. It doesn't envy their uh, love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act. The Greek word here is rude. Your translation may say rude, but unbecomingly in the uh, New American Standard. But the word is not rude. But here's, here's, listen, just keep reading. One more when you go. It does not seek its own. So it's not rude. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account a record of wrong suffered. But yours may say provoked. Do you know the Greek word is uh, irritable? You ever get irritated with your kids? You ever get irritated with, uh, uh, with your spouse? You ever get irritated with somebody you work with? What irritated? You just see, oh, oh, that person irritates me. Oh, oh, irritated. And then let me ask you something. This makes the point very clear. Where does that irritation come from? Well, it's their actions, which is the way they are. Therein lies the greatest need of the gospel. If you think that you hold the supreme right to be irritated because you're not irritating, or you're not as irritating, you need the gospel. <laughs> we need the gospel. At, at, at what right does anybody breathing the oxygen that God has given you and I have the right to be irritated at anyone? Give me. Just, on the basis that you're in a more superior place, you're, I have the right to be irritated with you, Scott, but you don't have the right to be irritated with me. Because I, you know, I'm just a little smarter or I'm kinder or I'm more patient or what a fallacy even using any of those words, right? I mean, but we do that. And that's why that Greek word fits so well there. So Satan's spiritual warfare, what does he want you to do? He wants you to be irritated. He loves it when you're irritated. He just loves it when you're irritable. And so then in lies our the problem of the poets and the historians and the authors and the great songwriters. They know something about love, but it's an earthly love. It's a carnal love. It's not biblical, spiritual, Christian love. Who had the right to be irritable 2,000 years ago? Who had the right to be rude? Who had the right to be impatient? Only one. Hanging on a cross. The blood flowing out of his body. He could have called 10,000 angels. And he was the only one who ever lived that, that, had, that had the right to say, I'm irritated. 
without exception. You and I don't have that right. If you and I would just give up the right to be irritated, what a lovely world this would be. If we could, before we got irritated with someone, and we say, well, you know, oh, Aubrey, put the, hit the brakes, brother, because I'm pretty sure you're, you're an irritating guy. See, this is a standard. Somebody's laughing. I, I, yeah. So, but then the final thing in this section, because I'm not going to read the old, it does not take into account, it does not hold a record of a wrong suffered, because the two are married. The reason we're impatient, just in these two verses, the reason we're impatient, the reason we're not kind, the reason we'll envy, uh, the reason that we'll brag or be arrogant, the reason that we'll act rude, the reason that uh, we, we, we'll, we will seek our own, the reason it's, it's irritated is all because of the, our bookkeeping, our record keeping. See, now, Scott, if I'm keeping a record, and obviously I have, I'm in a better position to keep a record than you because I'm superior to you and your wrongs are greater than mine. Could you even imagine having a conversation with God like that? Well, we got an example of it. There's a Pharisee in the temple, Luke 18. He, that's exactly what he said. Oh, God, thank you for not making me like other men, like a sinner. I have a record of everything I've done. Oh, my record. Get out the way. I Man, I tied 10% of even the smallest. Man, I know that book of Leviticus. I can quote the verses. And by my power and ability, now I, have a, now I can keep a record. And I can call somebody a sinner. Yeah. I can do that. Do you, and there's the single biggest problem in the church today, folks. Every church that is fighting any problem is based upon this principle right here. People actually think they don't have to be obedient to the commandments of Christ. Are those obedient? That, that applies to you, but it doesn't apply to me. Or you're not going to tell me, or I'm not going to do that. I, we couldn't even stand under the test of the red letter words, much less Genesis through Revelation. But if we believe that God is established by God, love is established by God, he then gave it to me. I haven't even got to Romans 5. It says, God, listen, while we were still enemies of God, he reconciled us by doing what? He poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we've been given the Holy Spirit. He's equipped us to do this, and it's a lifelong journey. So when you examine Paul's prayer, and this confidence that he had, that God who began a work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And you begin to try to understand that. And then you get to that third lesson. Oh, man, I'm praying. I'm praying that your love will grow more and more in real knowledge and understanding then we've got to understand what his love is. And that's as quick as I can do it on a Sunday morning sermon. That's as quick as I can do it. I wish to say more on these things. But that's why I challenge you. Read 1 Corinthians. I'm doing that. I started a few weeks ago. I'm ashamed that I haven't been doing it for 35 years. I mean that. I'm literally ashamed of that. If I start the 13 verses in 1 Corinthians 13, you and I are a culmination of everything that's going on in our life. If you work in a bank, you're thinking about banking stuff long after you punch out. If you run a business, if you're a homekeeper, whatever it is in life, 
you're thinking about whatever your life consists of. If you're spending 20, 30 minutes on social media, it's, it's what you're putting into your mind, whatever it is. Watching TV, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is. You and I are wholly responsible for the stuff that we put in our mind. Paul is going to say later on in this book, let your mind dwell on these things, having to do with the confidence since the fourth chapter. But you and I are fully responsible for the things that our mind is dwelling on because of everything that's happening in our life. Some because we've got to work. Some because we've got family. Some because of whatever. Some because, most because of our choices. What if you chose to read 1 Corinthians 13 every day? It might take you two minutes. And I'm ashamed. There have been times in my ministry where I did it all the time. I did it. I did it. But it's kind of like dieting or working out. Then you fall out of that habit. So I'm going to challenge you. I'm doing it. I'm ashamed that I ever quit doing it. But I'm reading it every day. Sometimes two or three or four times a day. Just 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13. I challenge you. See if it doesn't change your heart. See if it doesn't start connecting with you in a way intellectually, emotionally, uh, spiritually. Because you have desired in your heart to be obedient to the commands of Jesus. Because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, our minds, our carnal minds become spiritual. I pray that our carnal hearts turn to your word. I pray that uh, our, our earthly desires and emotions become obedient to your teachings. I pray that you create a spirit in us that is your spirit, that is desiring to be your servant and to be like you and to follow you and to love you and to submit ourselves to you. That is our prayer this morning. Father, I do believe that you are completing a good work in us, a perfect work. And believing that, Father, I pray that you help each of us not only believe it, Father, but desire it. And desire it in not just our words, but in our actions as well. And so, Father, we love you and we need you. And we pray in the name of love and need. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen.